Welcome to this episode of Out of the Best Books, the podcast where we deep dive into classic literature and have conversations about what we've learned and discovered along the way. We love all things books and reading, and we want to share our love of the classics with you. We hope to inspire you to read along with us and join in the conversation. I'm Laura. And I'm Amity. Let's get started. Hey, last section of The Great Gatsby. I'm really excited about this. There is so much that happens, and we're going to jump right into Chapter 7, which is ginormous. It's such a big chapter. A lot happens. So I'll go through and summarize, and then we can pull out what we want to talk about. I felt like all the chapters were relatively the same length, and then you had this one, which was like three times the length of any of them. Yeah, at least. That is crazy. And I'm just going to apologize for my voice. We've all been sick and it just like won't go away. It's just a never ending sickness. And my, I feel like my voice just keeps getting worse. So I'm sorry. I did want to start out in chapter seven in the very first paragraph. It talks about how Gatsby, it says, as obscurely as it had begun, his career as Tremalchio was over. And as I was doing a little research on The Great Gatsby and some of the first working titles, Tremalchio was one of the titles that F. Scott Fitzgerald was working with. Like that's one of, that was one of his ideas. It was like Tremalchio and the something. So I was like, I'm going to look that up, see what Tremalchio is. I, I did not know. So I looked it up and Tremalchio is a character from ancient Roman stories. He was this former slave who became wealthy and is a very ostentatious host, you know, throws these huge, crazy parties. So that really is Gatsby's story. So he is sort of the modern day Tremalchio. I thought that was kind of interesting. I wanted to start off with that. All right, jumping right into chapter seven, Gatsby and Daisy's affair is in full swing. His parties even stop. They say the electricity goes out, but really he just turns out the lights and so that nobody will even come. He actually dismisses all of his former staff and servants and he hires completely new ones. He says he wants people who will not gossip. And Nick finds out that Daisy is coming over like almost every afternoon. Uh, Gatsby and Nick are invited to the Buchanan's house for lunch on an extremely hot day. They arrive and Jordan is there and Jordan and Daisy are covered in this white powder. It kept talking about how they're covered in this white powder. It's very symbolic and lots of scholars talk about that white powder and its symbolism. But I looked it up because I was like, Okay, but I don't think that Fitzgerald just like was like, yeah, they're covered in white powder because they're so shallow and whatever. The white powder was a talcum powder, they're pretty sure, because the talcum powder was at that, that period used as like an antiperspirant. And so it was so, so hot. They like sprinkled themselves in talcum powder and then just like melted into their chairs, just sat there trying not to sweat. When they get there, Tom is on the phone and they are pretty sure he's like, on the phone with Myrtle Wilson. His affair is extremely blatant and out in the open. Uh, but after he gets off the phone, he comes in and he shakes hands with Gatsby. And I thought this was funny because he does it with well-concealed dislike. In other words, not well-concealed. He does not like Gatsby. Then Tom leaves to get drinks and Daisy, like right there in her house in front of everybody, she tells Gatsby she loves him and she pulls him down and kisses him right there in this living room with her husband in the other room. Her cute little girl is brought in and is introduced to everyone. One of the things that 
Daisy says is she's like, yeah, she doesn't look anything like Tom. She just looks like me. And then she's led away. And I want to talk about that a little bit more, but we'll pull that out later. So Tom comes back in. They have just like these meaningless conversation. And it's like right then that Tom finally sees there's like these looks exchanged. And Tom finally sees that without a doubt, there is an affair going on. There's something going on between Daisy and Gatsby. There's no attempt to conceal it. Like Gatsby and Daisy are, you know, they were out in the open in front of all those other people, but also now in front of Tom. Yeah. And Tom just like gets angry because he apparently had no idea. And he's just like, let's go to town. We're all going to town. And he's like, he's going to drive Gatsby's car. And so Gatsby and Daisy drive in his coupe and Tom, Jordan, and Nick drive Gatsby's car. And this is an important detail because it all comes around later. And in that moment, Tom realizes that both Jordan and Nick knew about the affair between Gatsby and Daisy. And he's like, you guys just think I'm dumb, don't you? He's like, but I'm, I'm not. I have a sixth sense, basically. So they're driving into town. And as they're driving, he's like, I've been doing some digging into Gatsby. And so I know more about his history. And he's like, it turns out that he and Daisy knew each other before. On their way into town, they stop at Wilson's for gas. And Wilson comes out. He's like, seems very ill. And it becomes apparent that he knows his wife is living a double life. He doesn't know with who. He he doesn't suspect that Tom is the other guy. But he knows that something is going on. And so, you know, everything is becoming apparent for everybody. But he's like, yeah, I'm going to take Myrtle out west. And as they're leaving, Nick sees Myrtle looking out the window from from the upstairs. He realizes that she thinks that Jordan sitting there in the car is Daisy. Like she didn't know who Daisy was before. Also, remember, they're driving Gadsby's car and Gadsby's car is yellow. So I love this quote. It says, there's no confusion like the confusion of a simple mind and Tom is confused. He's driving like a madman, which is 50 miles an hour, which is <laughs> for in, by today's standards, not crazy. But at that point in time, that was pretty fast. He's very angry and out of control. They get to town. They randomly just go rent a room at a hotel for them to all go hang out in. They're continuing with their very strange, meaningless conversations. And then finally, Tom starts making these jabs at Gatsby. And then he just comes out with it. He says, why are you trying to cause a row in my house, basically? And Gatsby is just honest with him. He says, your wife doesn't love you. Okay, here we have it. And she never did. Yeah. And he he keeps saying that. He's like, no, she doesn't love you. She never loved you. Tom is in complete denial. And Daisy is very just like on the fence. I think Gatsby is expecting that she'll just be like, yep, never loved you. We're done. You know, and she like kind of says that but then she's kind of like backpedals and tom says these things to sort of be like but what about this don't you remember that time in in this area and you're telling me you never love me and she's like oh well you know you can kind of like feel and see her her inner turmoil but gatsby is just determined that daisy never loved tom even when she thought she loved tom and married him she was actually just loving gatsby it was just sort of tom was this like substitute almost tom is completely flabbergasted and even says that even though he sometimes has a spree his heart still belongs to daisy he's like well yeah i've had these affairs gadsby now is like trying to push daisy to say that she has never loved tom and she kind of does 
but she's very reluctant about it. She's sort of hesitant, sort of like wishy-washy. And then he's like, Daisy is going to leave you, Tom. And she kind of agrees. Again, she's sort of wishy-washy. Yes, I'm going to-ish. So Tom tries to bring out his ammunition. He's like, Gatsby only has money because he's a bootlegger. You know, I know this. I, I've done my research. And he does his best to paint a nasty picture of Gatsby and his character. So Gatsby jumps in and he's trying to defend himself. And then it's just, oh my gosh, there's just, they're just chaos. Their brains are chaos. Their lives are chaos. Tom's like, let's go home. And he tells Gatsby that he's going to take Daisy in Gatsby's car. And I think at this point, Tom is pretty confident that all the foolishness is over. He's like, okay, Gatsby's going to see that it's really over. Daisy's going to see that he's just a sham. So I think in his mind, he's like sending them in the same car home together to be like, hey, this is for time for them to just like break things off and be done. I did think that was weird. He kind of knew what was happening. So why did he send them in the car together in the first place? And then he sends them in the car again. I don't know. It was that was very weird to me. Yeah. I think it goes back to his confused and simple mind. So they're all driving home. Nick and Jordan are riding with Tom again, but they're in his car. Okay. So then we kind of jump to Wilson's garage. Wilson has his wife, Myrtle, locked in the room upstairs. And his neighbor kind of comes over to see, like, what's going on and whatever. And then all of a sudden, he hears, like, yelling, Myrtle saying some crazy things. And then all of a sudden, she's running out of their garage and just sprinting into the street. Right at that moment, two cars come, and she is just violently just hit by these car well by one car and she immediately dies it's horrible like and like destroys her body his description of it is like quite graphic quite graphic and yeah i just wrote here she's violently and gruesomely killed by an oncoming car and she is like like i said her body is destroyed tom jordan and nick come upon the accident a little while later as soon as they realize what has happened tom is completely devastated he's very angry but then they learn that the car that killed Myrtle was, it was Gatsby's car. Because it was the yellow car Wilson saw earlier in the day, Wilson initially assumes that it was Tom who had killed her. Because he was like, oh, you were in this yellow car. You killed my wife. But Tom is able to clear his name because other people saw him in this other car. And they take off. They arrive back at the Buchanan's home and they see that Daisy and Gatsby are already there. Nick is just like, so disgusted and so sick by all of this so he can't even go into the house jordan is like trying to convince him to he won't instead he walks around the yard trying to figure out a way to go go home and he discovers gadsby out in the yard gadsby is there and he reveals that he is trying to make sure that tom doesn't do anything to hurt daisy because we find out it was actually daisy who was driving the car gadsby is like i'm going to take the fall for it but i think in his heart he was pretty sure that daisy would be honest and tell Tom that she was the one driving but it becomes apparent as the evening goes on that everything is totally peaceful and fine between Daisy and Tom she has totally let Gatsby take the fall she fully blames Gatsby in order to clear her name with Tom and with the world and to have peace I thought that was interesting like it talks about how they're sitting at the table I mean, they said they weren't eating the chicken that was there, but it's like, you like just violently killed a woman and you are just sitting at home like everything's normal. Yeah. And all of them are acting like nobody cares that this woman died. 
Tom might a little, but Tom does a little. And I think that Nick does. He, oh, I yeah. think he's like so shocked by it. He's like, what are these people doing? Yeah, it's really weird. What were some points that stuck out to you? So one is when at the beginning, when they, okay. So if you remember at the beginning of the book, Nick talks about Daisy's voice and how he can't like put a finger on it. Like, I think he talks about what it is about her voice, but like Gatsby then says in this chapter, her voice is full of money. And then Nick says, that was it. I'd never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it. The jingle of it and the symbols song of it. So you can tell this old money runs deep into her. It's like even in her mannerisms and her like, you know, she talks different. She has a different quality of voice. And does this show that Gatsby's fascination with her has a lot to do with money? Yeah, I think that his entire fascination with her has to do with her money. That's what he's been obsessed with this entire time. Because when we go back, we realize they were a thing for like a month. That's not very long, but that's what he held on to for years. And it was like, oh, she loves me. She's never loved you. She didn't really love Gatsby. They had this weird fascination with each other. Her fascination probably came from the fact that he was very different because he was poor. She didn't know that, but right. And his fascination came from the fact that she was so wealthy. Every part of her just exuded wealth and everything that she does goes back to her money. Even the fact that she's like, oh, I just killed someone. I'm falling back on my money. I can act like I'm innocent and we're just going to leave basically and it's going to be fine because I've got lots of money. So another thing is he's obsessed with her money and she's obsessed with his money because I was thinking about the time when she starts crying at his house when he's showing her the clothes. And she's like, oh, I do love you. Like, look at all this money. I don't know. It's just this weird. I don't know. It goes both strange. ways. Yeah, it totally does. It's very shallow. It's There is no love there, actually. Yeah, but I just like that that they that Nick yeah. is like, he's like, oh, that's what it was. Now I know what was, you know, the quality of her voice. Yeah. The other thing was when Tom, he's like starting to poke holes into Gatsby's story. And he's like, who are you anyhow? You're one of that bunch that hangs around with Meyer Wolfsheim. That much I happen to know. I've made a little investigation into your affairs and I'll carry it further tomorrow. I found out what your drug stores were. He turned to us and spoke rapidly. He and this Wolfsheim bought up a lot of side street drug stores here and in Chicago and sold grain alcohol over the counter. That's one of his little stunts. I picked him for a bootlegger the first time I saw him and I wasn't far wrong. Now, this is what's funny is like, Great Gatsby set in 1924, which is four mm-hmm. years into prohibition, right? Mm-hmm. So it's illegal to buy, drink, sell alcohol. Yeah. So he's kind of like, you're making your money illegally by selling alcohol. But Tom buys it and drinks it illegally. Constantly. Like he's yes. always, yeah, he's almost always drunk. Like when he's saying this, they are drinking. Yeah, like we're going to make mint juleps, right? Or something like that. Yeah. And they were going to hide to drink. That's what it sounded like to me. Like they had to go into this, you know, they couldn't do it out in the open. But so he might not sell alcohol, but he certainly, certainly buys it and drinks it illegally. And he's full of hypocrisy, right? He has an affair 
many affairs. Yes. And then he's like blaming Gatsby and Daisy for having an affair. And anyways, it's just like you said, I think earlier, the money and the privilege that they have just makes them not be accountable for anything they are doing or not. Yeah, They just, yeah, they have learned they don't have to be because their money is who they are and money, money takes care of all their problems. You know, what's funny. I just thought of this, like politicians. I don't know what the, or actors and actresses, like I haven't figured out the difference between the people that actually get away with things and the people that take the fall. Because mm-hmm. sometimes you'll have like Bill Cosby who like, yeah. for some reason he didn't have a pass or whatever, but like yeah. you've got politicians that do the same thing and oh. they never get in trouble. I don't know. I haven't figured out luck. Well, I don't know. And maybe they feel like they have to have their token sacrificial lamb to be like, oh, look, we're rooting out the bad guys. No, you're not. They're all so corrupt and so awful. I'm sorry. How do they get so unlucky to be that token sacrificial lamb? I don't know. You know, why is this one okay and that one's not? And you're doing the same thing, but yet so-and-so just keeps doing what they're doing and gets away with it. And then somebody else doesn't. I don't know. Anyways. Yeah. That's just funny that this book was written so long ago and we still see the same thing now. Yeah, absolutely. The wealthy and not just the wealthy, but I kept thinking, you know, these wealthy people also represent kind of like you said, sort of government leaders in countries in general that they do whatever they want. And who is it that takes the fall? It's always the poor people. It's always, they're always the ones that reap the consequences of the choices of the very Wealthy and powerful. Yeah. I, I kept thinking about like the Murdoch trial, right? They had to do something so bad that it was clear and they finally got in trouble, right? But look at all the poor people around them that suffered from Alec taking yeah. their money from their lawsuits and yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Absolutely. There's actually, I wanted to share this because in our history right now, we're talking, we're reading um, The Trumpeter of Krakow. So we're studying medieval history in our school and we've gotten to 15th century Ukraine, actually. Well, it's that part of the world, you know, it's the geographical lines and political lines were quite different than they are today. But have you heard of The Trumpeter of Krakow? Mm-mm. So it's a, a Newbery Award winner written back in 1925, I believe. He gives us really wonderful insight. He says, so it had always been in time of war that the innocent suffer most. These poor helpless peasants with their carts and horses and geese and sheep trudging along the dust to escape. If God so willed the terrible fate, which would befall them were they left behind. And yeah, I just, I think that is such a true statement that spans time. It is always the peasants and like anybody who's not in power and doesn't have billions of dollars is still the peasants, you know, like mm-hmm. you, can, you, you don't have to actually like be living in a dirt hut to be a peasant and to sort of be the, the fall guy to be the one who actually feels the wrath of the, um, the choices that these, these powerful leaders make. So yeah. anyway, so the white powder, like I said, I guess it also kind of represents, you know, both Jordan and Daisy are covered in it. There's this just like a 
shallowness. It's their silliness. It's sort of like this facade. And then it's really interesting that when Daisy's little girl is brought in, she touches her and it gets on her. It's like she's spreading that to her. It's this almost generational thing. And it does come with the wealth. They're just, they're shallow and silly and just have these facades. But also where the littlest girl is concerned, Nick refers to her as it. And he says, it was almost like Gatsby was never really believed in its existence. They never named the little girl. She's this just in the background. She's just there. And I just, and even Daisy refers to her just as a dream. She's like, oh, you little dream. There's nothing substantial in their lives at all. Even children. Yeah. It's like shallow conversation. Yes. They do things all day long that have no meaning and no like purpose. They're just kind of existing. Yeah. Very interesting. So chapter eight, luckily it's not, that's horrifically long. (laughs) Okay. So it's the next morning after the big accident and Nick is visiting Gatsby for breakfast. Gatsby mentions that he had stayed there all night outside waiting to make sure that Daisy was okay. Daisy had never come out. She at one point at four in the morning, looked out the window and then turned off the light. And so in the morning, Gatsby took a taxi home. Gatsby starts telling Nick more about his relationship with Daisy in the like early years before she had met Tom. And he talks about how he had liked the money that she had. And he really had deceived her by making her think that he was the same class as her. And this will come up later when I talk about books that are like the same, because that happens a lot in classic literature where we've got mm-hmm. like different classes and love. <laughs> But yeah, he like deceived her and he made her think that he was the same level as her. And I didn't know how to say this after they had been intimate. (laughs) Yeah. He felt like he was married to her. And, you know, I think that happens a lot, especially with women. Once that happens, women have a hard time. Probably men too. Clearly Gatsby did. Would have a hard time letting them go. Like they felt like that was it. We're, we're together. Anyways, just mentioned that he felt like he was married to her. So shortly after that, he leaves for war and Daisy waits for a while, but eventually meets and marries Tom. Now, at at one point she said, I think it said in the book that she was waiting and then she just kind of got tired of waiting and wanted to move on with her life. And so she married Tom. Her fascination with Gatsby was not equal to his for her. Now, He does, after the war, come back to Louisville and, like, try to find her, and he's not successful. So he kind of walks the same streets that they walked, and then he gives up. And he thinks later, he's like, if I would have looked a little longer, maybe I would have found her. But she was overseas on her honeymoon with Tom, which is funny because that was pretty close. She hadn't been married very long when he came back, so. Yeah. She was impatient. Okay, so after breakfast, Nick and Gatsby go for a walk in the garden and the gardener comes up to Gatsby and says like, I think I need to drain the pool. And he says, don't do that because I haven't even gotten to use it this year and I want to. And so then Nick is leaving for the city, which is funny. He goes to work, which is the first time that anybody goes to work (laughs) in the whole book. And just before he's leaving, I love this. He says to Gatsby, they're a rotten crowd. You're worth the whole damn bunch put together. And then with this next sentence, I knew what was going to (laughs) happen. Like I knew this. I didn't know the story of The Great Gatsby. Like I I knew it was set in the 20s and that some 
uh, two people had a fascination with each other, but I didn't know any, any more than that. The sentence was, I've, I've always been glad I said that it was the only compliment I ever gave him because I disapproved of him from beginning to end. So I knew what was going to happen. And then Gatsby's reaction was this radiant and understanding smile. Like it's the first time he's like, oh, somebody approves of me and likes me. And then he goes into the city to work and he has trouble staying awake because (laughs) their night last night was pretty rough. He gets a phone call from Jordan, which kind of wakes him up. Conversation doesn't go very well. Somebody hangs up on the other person. He's not even sure which one does it. And then he decides after he hangs up that he just doesn't really care. Yeah, they just been becomes swept up in all of their mindset, which none of them really care. Yeah. They don't really care. Yeah, interesting. And and it's just funny. Like I know Nick has like flaws, but he's also supposed to be like the grounded, good person and all this, right? He's the only one that actually cares about Gatsby. Then Nick kind of goes back into what happened at Wilson's garage the night that Merle dies. He'd spent the whole night talking with Nicholas about his wife. He said that he thought that he, well, he knew that she was with another man. And he thinks that the man she was having an affair with is the one who was driving the car. And he also believes that she had been running out to talk to him. And Nicholas says, no, I think she was running away from you. She had her locked in a room. I mean, he thought he could lock her in a room, get everything arranged, and then move her out. And Wilson says, I have a way of finding out who was driving that car. And then Nicholas had like left at four or five in the morning, comes back, and Wilson is missing. He's disappeared. And then it kind of talks about how he had, he walked to Gatsby's house. And he like, other people had seen him and he bought food, but he hadn't eaten it. And so he's kind of meandering his way over to Gatsby's house. He's probably... Kind of like Tom, not thinking clearly, not, you know, it was a pretty gruesome, horrific night. So then at two o'clock in the afternoon, Gatsby had decided to go for a swim. He tells the butler, if I get a phone call, let me know, come get me. Nobody calls because nobody cares. (laughs) There's nobody in his life, right? Later that afternoon, Nick gets home from work and him and some of Gatsby's help are walking are they looking for him i don't know they're walking around the grounds and they see gatsby in the pool he'd been shot and so as they're carrying his body from the pool into the house they see wilson's body is laying in the grass near the pool so there you go that was shocking to me yeah pretty crazy and it's kind of interesting because wilson is sort of like tracked from his garage you know, he stops at these different places. People see him along the way. It's almost like he leaves these little calling cards along the way. But then there's like this three-hour gap that nobody really knows where he was. And then the next time that he's seen, he's in a lump on Gatsby's lawn. He's killed Gatsby and he's killed himself. So there's like that three-hour mysterious window, which we'll find out what he was doing. I just like how Nick kind of has this moment where he has sympathy for Gatsby. And I think in the end, Gatsby was going to take the fall for Daisy. Yeah. I mean, he was planning on it. And I, it makes me wonder if he knew that he was going to totally take the fall. Like he expected it. I don't know. Maybe it kind of seems that way a little bit, but I don't know. I mean, Nick said this at the very beginning of the book, but then he reiterates it here. 
you know, when he says it was the only compliment I ever gave him because I disapproved of him from beginning to end to end, which is kind of interesting because he does have this sort of odd fascination with Gatsby and yet he disapproves of him too. And I, I've been trying to figure that out. Like, is it because he sees that Gatsby is like grasping at straws that he's like trying to totally be something he's not that he's risen above his station. He does not belong there. He's trying to be in this world where he is, he's not welcome. They'll always be an outsider. I don't know. Does he feel sorry for him? That's kind of what I thought is like, he, he feels bad for him because he's kind of made out to be a fool. I don't know. And everybody's like, you don't belong here. I don't know if I know anybody like that. That's like, I don't know that I do either. Somebody that's just trying so hard. Well, I think in more of a small scale way, I think there's lots of people who are trying hard to be what they're not or trying to put on a facade because they think they're, they're trying to be what they think they're supposed to be or what they think is, will bring them approval, uh, will bring them popularity. I don't, maybe this isn't relevant, but like I have a friend, well, she's not really a friend anymore. She was just an acquaintance from school. She is like so desperate for fame. Like, it's crazy that she and her husband have gotten her son into acting. And, like, he was in a Netflix film. They were, like, their family was, like, featured on in some magazine or other. And, and it's, like, why are you so desperate for fame? Do you not see, like, this destroys people, especially child actors? Like, what are you doing to your kid? To me, it seems really, really selfish and very pretentious. And like, it's very strange. Yeah. I have a question for you too. Do you feel, so like I said, I can't think of anybody that I know like this, this that comes off the top of my head, but I felt like this before. Okay. Like you're in situations or groups of people where you don't belong. And it's kind of uh, the situation I'm going to tell you about. I felt like I should belong. But like it was clear to me that the other people were like, you're not part of our group. So our kids went to our four older kids went to the Spanish immersion school here. Mm. I mean, that school wasn't like a private school where you paid. It was like a lottery. Right. But the families that went to that school were a group. And I was not part of that group. You know, like it wasn't so apparent in the children, which is really funny. The kids were all friends and they didn't feel like they didn't have friends or whatever. But as a parent, it was very clear to me that you are not part of this like rich clique. And I don't know if it's because most of them lived in a certain area and we did not. I I mean, they're like, oh, you live in that poor area. I don't, I mean, not that we live in a poor area, but we don't live in their rich area. Right. Sure. Yeah. So I don't know if it was like location or if they knew each other before or whatever, but yeah, it was very clear. And it's sad too, that as parents, we would treat others like that. Like, absolutely. Well, and you're saying that and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like, I've experienced that so many times. And especially like right now, in fact, I'll share. So Tate's on his high school baseball team, which totally sucks. Like it's horrible. <laughs> they're, they're so bad. And I think so much of it has to do with the ridiculous politics. They play kids because of who their dads are. I'm really serious. It's 
stupid. And the fact is that most of the parents, just like kind of what you're saying, they're very wealthy. They're just these old families that have lived here forever and they have tons of money. It's all inherited. I mean, and good for them. They've like, they've like expounded on that. You know, it's not like they've just blown all the money, but so all these very wealthy parents and here's us, we're just like, well, Tate's working his butt off. He's like working so hard and doing pretty well, but we're totally the outsiders. Mm -hmm. I'm totally an outsider. Ken is somebody he'll just like, and, and a lot of times it's like the dads are not as bad. The moms are bad. And in fact, I thought it was really interesting because they've had like this thing. They like sign up to host or provide team lunch or dinner. Like just parents will like host the entire baseball team. I'm like, I saw that at the beginning of the year. And I was like, holy crap. How do I do that? Like I'm poor and I'm supposed to feed this entire baseball team and a nice dinner. I can't host them at my house, but they'll also do it where you can like take the lunch to the school. And Tate really wanted me to do that. And I was like, okay, like I'll do that. So this entire season, these team moms, they like, or not the team moms, but the moms on the team, they like get together and help each other. And they like, you know, do all this stuff. I sign up. Nobody signs up to help me. Nobody reaches out to me about anything. I don't know anything. You know, I'm like, okay, Tate, you're going to have to find out because I've tried to find out. Nobody tells me where am I supposed to go? When am I supposed to be there? How many kids are on the team? And these ladies, like always the night before, they would send out a group message. It didn't matter who was doing it. There was one lady who would do it for everybody. She'd be like, hey, everybody, team lunch tomorrow. Nobody did that for me. So I'm like, I guess I'll do it because I want to make sure everybody knows. So I did it myself. I was like, hey, team lunch tomorrow in Coach Esplin's room. This was just a couple of days ago. Anyway, so I just did the whole thing. Took care of all of it. Didn't With no help. Boo. No help. None whatsoever. And again, like no help with letting everybody know there was no thank you afterwards. Everybody else's. There was like, thank you for that great thing. Thanks for hosting. Thanks for taking the lunches. Nothing. I'm telling you, I think it's because you're new. I think that's yeah. all it is. It's like it's, you're new, new and we're poor. Well, you're new and they're like, what? we're not letting outsiders in. Yeah. I don't know. That's funny. I uh, Just really quick. This is really funny. I've been texting. So Presley's on this little soccer team. Yeah. It's not going well, but she just doesn't love soccer. She has like two and a half minutes of endurance and stamina. And then she's like, take me out. But the first day, oh my gosh, the first snack they got, I it was a bag of like eight or 10 things in it. Oh my gosh. Like there was, I'm not, that is not an exaggeration. Oh that no, I, I know. I've seen it. Like it's crazy. I'm like, you there, guys, what are yes. you doing? Yes. And so I was like, okay, this is strange. So I texted the picture to like my family and I was like, um, you know, we haven't had kids in sports in eight years. And I'm like, what happened to snacks? I'm shocked. Anyways, yesterday's snack was a tray of fruit for each kid that was like the size of a lunch. Okay. One section had carrots and cucumbers. Then there was a section with cut up strawberries and blueberries, and then a section with watermelon. Okay, a tray. Oh my gosh. For each child. Then there was an apple and a cutie 
and a drink, a Gatorade. This one lady, <laughs> this one lady oh who's a single gosh. mom goes, she looked at me and she goes, I can't compete with this. She's like, I was really glad that like the, the signups got taken and there was no days left because. Bless it, her heart. Like she's being honest. Yes. And I mean, like, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. No, my thought was, was it that first week that set the like precedence or is this something I even texted a friend and said, is this normal? And she said, well, no, it must just be your team. So anyways, just funny story. But yeah, like, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to give yeah. the kids a healthy snack? Or are we trying to impress everybody? There was eight or 10 soccer stickers yesterday in the bag. It was crazy. Anyways. Oh my gosh. I'm done. No, but... That is just crazy. Like, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> it's just really funny. I was like, good thing I wasn't the first parent to bring snacks. <laughs> or maybe it would have been better for everybody if you were. Maybe. because like, keep it simple. Good. I had great. no idea. But like the same thing with you, like with this lunch, like who are these families that can provide a lunch for 20 kids on a baseball team or whatever? Like, yeah. That's insane. It to is be insane. Expected to do that. I, that was the thing. I was like, is the school pay? It cost me 150 bucks. And I like, I homemade stuff and I like tried to keep it simple. I kept like cutting back, cutting back, still 150 bucks. And it all got eaten. Oh my gosh. So I, I didn't go overboard. That's crazy. Okay. Enough with our rant, but I thought that was kind yeah. of entertaining. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think so too. It's it's super interesting. And I think it's very telling too. Chapter nine. So Wilson has killed Gatsby. And as they're investigating it, they just, they just decide that Wilson was a man deranged by grief. And that's what led him to kill Gatsby. And then himself, because they didn't know that there was anything going on with Myrtle, that she was having extramarital affairs or anything. Her they interviewed her sister, Catherine, and Catherine was not forthcoming at all. She was just like, oh, yeah, she was completely happy in her marriage. This was just totally a freak accident. Wilson was so upset and mad, and so he went and killed Gatsby. In the aftermath of this, Nick suddenly realizes he is Gatsby's person. He didn't sign up for that. It just becomes apparent. Like He's fielding questions from everybody. He says that he's trying to find somebody who's close to Gatsby. He's like... I mean, yeah, like we're neighbors, but surely there's somebody who's like close to him to like take care of the funeral arrangements and things like this. Nobody. So he's like, like, how can I be the closest person to him? Yeah, I think it's one of those things kind of like what we were talking about. Like he feels like an outsider. He's like, how, how is this me? What? They'd only known each other for three months. For three months. Yeah. And all of a sudden he finds himself having to arrange everything. And, but he does bless his heart like to his credit he looks feverishly for friends of Gatsby to like take over take over funeral arrangements like I said and then he's like desperate to just find people to come to the funeral because he realizes okay I'm doing this people are gonna come right no he can't find anybody that will even come to the funeral he contacts everybody he can think of he contacts this Wolfsheim who sends a note who's just like, oh, I can't get mixed up in this. He contacts Clip Springer, who like lived in Gatsby's house. And all that he was worried about was the fact that he left some shoes there. He's like, no, I can't. I can't come to the funeral. He thinks that maybe there will be a note from Daisy. There's nothing. He tries to contact them. Daisy and Tom have left the city. 
Nobody knows where they went. He does finally get word that he needs to like hold out on the funeral for a couple of days because Gatsby's father is coming. Never heard about him before, but he is, I mean, maybe a little bit, but he didn't even know if they were alive or dead, his parents. But he does, Henry Gats. He shows up. He had seen things about Gatsby's death in the Chicago newspaper. And so he came. He hadn't seen his son in two years. He didn't know what his house looked like, but he walks into his house and he's just like, it's like, wow, wow. He just really made something of himself. He's like so proud of his son. He's just very convinced that his son was going to be like a world changer. You know, he was just that kind of person. He does reveal that like when Gatsby came into money, he took good care of his father. He like bought him a nice house, made sure he was well taken care of, said he was a really good son. On the morning of the funeral, Nick actually makes a personal visit to Wolfsheim to be like, come to the funeral. Wolfsheim is like, no, I'm not coming. I'm not mixing myself up into that. And he says, let us show our friendship for a man when he is alive and not after he is dead, which is a pretty twisted way of looking at it. So in the end, for the funeral, it's only Nick, Gatsby's father, Mr. Gats, and the minister who go to the funeral. And there are a few of the servants who come. They don't really know Gatsby very well. There's no really emotional attachment. And like as the funeral is beginning, it's basically just a graveside ceremony. The random guy that loved Gatsby's library, he pulls up and he runs out there. And he's like, where's the hundreds of people? They sure came to his party. Why aren't they here, you know? The owl eyes, the guy that got in that car accident outside of his party. Yeah. Things move along. Nick and Jordan have this very strange relationship, but basically they meet up He and they wrap things up and she tells them that she's engaged. He, she's probably not, but he's like, it's fine. He's like, he was angry. He was half in love with her, but he leaves. And that was like the best thing he could do. She's a pretty corrupt and shallow woman as, as well. A while later in New York, Nick runs into Tom. And I think that Nick has finally come into his own a little bit. He's like probably the most assertive that we've seen him throughout the entire book. And he obviously has a lot of disdain for Tom. And he's like, what did you tell Wilson? So we kind of find out that that three hours that Wilson is unaccounted for, he made his way to the Buchanan's house because I think he still thought it was Tom that had killed his wife. He comes there with a gun. And so Tom tells him that it was Gatsby that did it. Like he turns him to Gatsby. He's the one who sends him to Gatsby's house, knowing very well he's going to kill Gatsby. Mm -hmm. So really, Tom is very much to blame for a lot of things. The end of the of the book comes, we find out that Gatsby's house is just pretty much just been completely abandoned. There's even like graffiti on his porch. Nick is leaving the neighborhood, but he visits Gatsby's house one last time. He goes and sits down by the shore. And I just wanted to read just this little bit at the very end of the book. He said, and as I sat there brooding in the old unknown world, I thought of Gatsby's wonder when he first picked out the green light at the end of Daisy's dock. He did not know that it was that it was already behind him. This dream that he had, it was already past. It was gone. Somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gadsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow, we will run faster, stretch out our arms farther, and one fine morning, so we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. The end of the book. Yeah, I liked this book, actually. Like, I mean, I don't know. I felt like it was really short and kind of, I don't know how to explain. There was a lot of like things that didn't get 
I don't know. Did you feel like everything was completed? Or there was like these offshoots that were like random and kind of not brought into the end? I don't know. Does that make sense? Yes. I I totally agree with that. And I think that he did that on purpose. Because what have we always said about a classic? A classic is a story that never finishes saying yeah. what it has to say. Because it's some and like this has been one that most people are introduced to in high school. And it's like widely talked about, widely debated. And there's a reason why he does. There's lots of open ends. Yeah. So it's like he's like, here's some food for thought. Boom. Now think about it. Yeah. About it. It's kind it. of been it's kind of been fun to like think about all the things we could talk about. Nick doesn't ever tell Tom that Daisy was behind the wheel. So That's true. Like when he goes and visits him or he runs into him in New York later, mm -hmm. he never mentions it. And I thought that was funny. Okay. So David and I have been watching this show on Amazon called Jury Duty. Oh. Okay. It's is a it reality show. Okay. Oh, is it really? Yes. It's very interesting. So I told my sister, Emily, and, and her fiance, Darren, they've been watching it too. And like they texted me last night. It's hilarious. But they like put out this... Like, do you want to be on this jury where they were they were doing a documentary about this jury or something to apply to be on the show? Well, actually, one person, they select one person who is thinks he's a real juror, but everybody else in the case is actors. So there's oh. like the whole jury is actors, the defendant, the plaintiff, the judge, they're all actors. Only person that doesn't know this isn't real is this one juror. And they throw so much at him. The other jurors are crazy. Like, it is so funny. Now, again, not terribly appropriate. So I'm just warning you. I mean, it's not horrible, but don't watch it with your kids. Okay. <laughs> and now, don't judge me. Is this the one with James Marsden? Yes. Because I've seen like previews and I was like, that actually looks really funny. I didn't know that it was a reality show though. So yeah, for this one juror. And so James Marsden, he plays himself. That, okay. Because like in the like preview, he's like, I'm a very recognizable public figure. I can't do this. I've been in like, I'm X-Men and stuff. And I was like, wait, he's like talking like James Marsden. <laughs> and he seems like a really funny guy, honestly, but. He is hilarious. If you're going to watch it, I think this is good to know in the beginning. And I wish I had known and would have been paying attention as we were watching it. Cause at the end they talk about how this guy that they selected was the hero. He kept everybody's secrets. He was kind to everyone. I mean, these people were nuts. Oh my gosh. And he really wanted to do a good job. He ends up being the foreman of the jury. The case was crazy and stupid, but he like wanted to do a good job and do his duty as like a juror. I would totally highly recommend this show. It was so funny. Yeah, I have to say like the previous, I was like, I guess I didn't realize it was on Amazon. Um, but I was like, I wish I had access to that because that actually looks like it would be fun. So it's very, it's very funny. Uh, I, so, and the funny thing is, is we've been, you know, we watched a lot of the Murdoch trial. And yeah. then at this point I am completely obsessed with the um Lori and Chad Daybell trial oh, in yeah. Idaho. I've been hearing about that. Okay. So yeah, I told Presley, I'm like, well, mom and dad will be back in about eight weeks when this is over. <laughs> so I hope you can take care of yourself. 
And we're like, I don't know how other people in the world aren't watching this. <laughs> it's so crazy. You know what? That's funny because I've actually seen a few other people say the same thing. They're like, you need me. I'll be watching this. <laughs> 100%. Oh. So um, East Idaho News does like a recap every night and for like a 40 minutes to an hour. So we watched oh, wow. that. I w- And at the beginning, I was listening to the, all the audio because they post all just the audio from the trial. Mm-hmm. But it's so many hours. It's like bad. hard to keep up. But oh, my gosh. So fascinating. That's all David and I talk about right now. Yeah. And probably just horrifying too. Yes. A hundred percent. So the other thing I just wanted to talk about was how like he was so popular when he was alive as in people wanted to be there, like be part of his group, his circle, his parties. Yeah. But it was so superficial. And like when he died, there was just nobody, nobody would stand up and say they were his friend. Yeah. And yeah, that's what I wanted to talk about too. It's just like, how do we make real and lasting relationships? Being fascinating is not the way, you know, being mysterious is not the way. And it made me think about, you know, all of Brene Brown's work and how like really to find out what your real relationships are, you have to be willing to be vulnerable. You know, you have to like share your story with people that you think you can trust. And then you find out if you really can. And that's like what helps to cement those relationships. And those are the people that become your ride or die that are going to be there at your funeral. And it's better to have just a few close and trusted friends than a million superficial relationships. That's what matters in the end. But yeah, that's it. That was really sad to me. He had no real friends. Like when somebody dies, then all of a sudden it's like, oh, they were so wonderful. They were so wonderful. And everybody comes to their funeral when they really didn't have. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's true. And it's, and I think that would be just as sad though. You find out, oh, there's all these people because I think they want to act like they knew the person, but then you find out they didn't really, they don't really care. And that's just, yeah, that's just as sad. Did you have any books similar? I have three. I have to fully disclose. I didn't take a lot of time to think about it. So maybe share yours and that might trigger some thoughts. Okay. And I have to fully disclose that I have to Google it. So there you go. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> I, go- I Google them. I'm like, books. Oh yeah, that makes sense. Okay. So the first one is Romeo and Juliet by William Shakespeare. So oh, okay. we know that this is the story of two lovers who are separated from each other by class and social prejudice and their families don't like each other. But in that, and being totally unable to think about living without each other, they kill themselves. It's kind of similar. We've got it to, really is. They're just different and they can't be together. And that's kind of how Daisy, Daisy and Gatsby, Gatsby are in separate classes. And Gatsby tries to make himself, bring himself up to her class, but it doesn't work. Yeah. He's not successful. Okay. The second one is Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. This one has similar themes like mm-hmm. class, religion, feminism. You know, it's a lot of, I mean, I think there's a lot of, would you say anti-feminism in The Great Gatsby? I don't know. Yeah. 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 This is, you know, the story of Jane Eyre. And as she grows up and then she falls in love with Mr. Rochester and they're different classes. And then the last one I thought of that's total class situation is Weathering Heights by Emily Bronte. Mm. So I didn't 
Yeah, um, very good. You've got Heathcliff and Catherine who love each other so intensely. And the same thing with as the Gatsby is like he loves her more than she loves him. They love each other, but there's definitely a fascination one way. Catherine has to choose between him and Edgar Linton, who is more her class. And then when she does choose him, it just destroys Heathcliff. And then he pretty much destroys everything around him and them. And it goes on for generations after. So it does. Yeah. Anyways, those were my three. Those are very, very good. Maybe you've read some of the other ones. So some of the other ones I didn't bring up because I'd never read. Let me ask if you've read. Have you read 1984? I sure have. That was one that came up. Other than just these very superficial relationships, everything is sort of almost dreamlike and surreal the whole time. So I could see that. And yet it's also uh, a commentary on society and where things are going and sort of a warning. So I could see that. Have you ever read The Age of Innocence? I don't think so. Or The Sun Also Rises? Was that one? I have read that. It's been a long time. Let's see. Is that one? Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway. Okay. Yeah. And so I will say that they're kind of in the same time period. And they do have a kind of a similar writing stuff. Well, Ernest Hemingway is very, I don't know. Here's the feeling that I have when I read Ernest Hemingway. Is that you're like standing up on a cloud looking down at the things that are happening. And it's just, you're just, so you're just sort of like getting little bits and pieces and he's just like throwing all of it at you. And you're like trying to gather what the heck he's talking about. Yeah, it's a very dreamlike style of writing, I think. And so, you know, that I could see how that would be kind of similar too. What else do they have in there? The Age that's of Innocence similar. by Edith Wharton. Because okay. that's in New York in the 20s. You know what it also reminds me of though is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. Yes, that's probably the only other book I've read that was set in a similar time. Mm-hmm. Very similar time. And it is, again, sort of like, now completely different story, but this young girl who's who marries Max, she's kind of rejected by a lot of the people around her. It's almost like they're always comparing her to Rebecca. And she's like constantly trying to figure out what's wrong with her and trying to fit in. And then we find out that Rebecca was actually kind of this monster lady. Even One more Martin. that I just thought of. And it's been such a long time since I read it. I just remember having sort of a similar feeling. When I read it, it's uh, The Awakening by Kate Chopin. That's sort of like this lady waking up to her, sort of her, I don't know, sexuality and like she can sleep with lots of people, whatever. And I think that one takes place in the early 20th century too. Well, and it's hard to look up because there's lots of books, but the one by Kate Chopin is, uh, and it was published in 1900. It's set in New Orleans. And it centers on Edna Pontellier and her struggle between her increasingly unorthodox views on femininity and motherhood with the prevailing social attitudes of the turn of the century American South. And it is one of the earlier American novels that focuses on women's issues without condescension. And it's also widely seen as a landmark work of early feminism, generating a mixed reaction from contemporary readers and critics. Anyway, when when was this published? Do you know? Uh, 1925, I believe. What book did you want to share? Okay, this part I'm really excited about because you will recognize this author and love her. But this is a book that actually my eighth grader was assigned to read for his language arts for our homeschool. Um, but we're doing like this outside language arts thing. So he was reading it and I was like, 
I love this author. I'm going to read it with you. I had to listen to it, of course. So it's called The Fountains of Silence by Ruta Sepetis. The book I'm sharing is by Ruta Sepetis. <gasps> I love it. I will read anything by her. So 100%. far, I've only read I've only read Salt to the Sea, but I'll read anything by her. This one was happening? so. What's that? happening that we're sharing books by the same author (laughs) that's great i love it that's so awesome so she's pretty fantastic the fountains of silence it's about a, a part of history that i just didn't know much about so it takes place in spain uh the book begins in 1957 in spain it's this this texas cowboy has gone to madrid because his mother is a Spaniard who had lived in America for a long time, married a wealthy oil man in Texas, and they take their son to Madrid. And he meets up with Anna and her family. And it weaves this story that lets you know about the extreme corruption in Spain um, during the years of the dictatorship of Francisco Franco and how he was this total fascist that did terrible things the U.S. wanted to keep sort of a good relationship with him. There was a lot of things that people just didn't know because they kept so many things hush-hush. They didn't want, you know, Spain didn't want the world to know what they were doing. But as you you get into this story, you find out all kinds of very horrible and corrupt things that had happened over the years. And so the majority of the book takes place in 1957 and then it jumps to like 1975 when Francisco Franco dies. And finally Spain is able to sort of like come into its own and like shed the, the shackles of the past, you know, it's a sweet love story, but really dives deep into all the things that happened. And there's people that just disappeared and were tortured and executed for no other reason that they were on the wrong side. And then babies that were taken from their parents and given to other parents because these other parents would raise them to be good Spaniards. And the parents who gave birth to the babies were told that their babies had died. And that happened to like 300,000 babies and families. So yeah, it's a really, it was really, really good book. That was one of her earlier ones, which I haven't read. I think I own it, but I haven't read it. So maybe I will pick it up. The funny thing is, is I think that Ruta Sepetis, she writes about a lot of historical fiction times that we don't know about, that aren't widely written about. Although Salt of the Sea right, was, right. was World War II, wasn't it? It was World War II, but it covered the sinking of the ship that like nobody knows about. Yes, right. I don't know if you remember this. So the book I'm sharing is I Must Betray You by Ruta Sepetis. Okay. And when I finished it, I think I texted you and I said, Tate needs to read this book. We'll love this book. So okay. say it again. Awesome. Kate needs to read this book. <laughs> okay. So Romania in 1989. Now, this is happening in my lifetime, in your lifetime. Yeah. I was 10. I had no idea that a country was living like this when I was 10 years old. We live in the United States and we have this amazing life where we don't worry about things. And there's some there's people across the world that are worried about eating, being controlled, being forced to become informers, like blackmailed into becoming informers. Mm-hmm. The only thing I knew about Romania was Nadia Comaneci, like as a child. Mm-hmm. I'd heard of her, I'd seen her on the, you know, the Olympics, like yeah, she competed in the Olympics before I was born, but she was like a coach and she was always there. The story is about Christian Florescu. And he wants to become a writer. 
But in Romania, they're not allowed to have dreams or mm. like talk about, you know, they're just totally controlled. He and his friends will have these movie nights where they get movies from the United States and they think it's fake because they're like, people live like this. Mm. Like they have food in their refrigerators stocked full of food and they like are able to drink Coke. And well, Christian, he's blackmailed and he is forced to become an informer. And so what he does is he, he at the same time is writing to kind of bring everything to light that's happening in their country. And later on that comes to play, comes into play at the end. Everybody is informing on everybody. And so, you know, he has a, a sick grandpa that lives with him. He has a, a mother that cleans a house for the, like the people from the United States, like ambassadors. She cleans their house. And so he finds out that people are informing on him and he doesn't know who it is. So at the end of the book, you find out who's been informing hmm. on everybody else. And then at the end, his writings come into play. There's a lot of surprises at the end too. On mm, That's cool. That but sounds really good. I just loved it because it's like, kind of think makes me think of like the Ukraine right now. Like we just yeah. have no idea what's going on yeah. over there and we can't even fathom it. Yeah. It's just wild, isn't it? Nadia actually escapes the country at one point. Like mm. just walks, runs out into the woods because, and then comes to the United States and tries to, I think she tries to tell what's going on over there, but it's so secret that nobody over here knew yeah. what was happening over there. Well, and that makes me think of, you know, we talk about our lifetime. I think there's a lot of things, there's very few people who will talk about it, but there's a few who have like escaped North Korea and will be brave enough to talk about it. And it's like, oh my gosh, that's happening what? Or I think about, you know, the story of Hotel Rwanda and like the genocide there. Oh my gosh. Which that was in the nineties, right? She said I mean, at the end of this book that a lot of the people that she interviewed were not willing to give their names. I believe so. it. Yeah. That's wild. So next week we're going to start Charlotte's web and that'll be exciting. It will. It's just, it's one of my favorites. It's so sweet. And then, so we'll do two episodes of that. And then we're going to take the month of June off. We are so happy you joined us for this episode. We hope you'll join us next week as we discuss the first half of Charlotte's Web by E.B. White, and that will be chapters one through 11. If you have suggestions for books we should read and discuss, please email us at thebestbookspodcast at gmail.com. We would love it if you would leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. We want to inspire and encourage as many people as we can to read out of the best books. As Thoreau says, Read the best books first, or you may not have a chance to read them at all. See you next week.